This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Two double murders within a five-year time frame, the first in 2008 and the second in 2013, would have police in Omaha, Nebraska wondering if they had a serial killer on their hands. The only real link was each victim's affiliation with Creighton University in Omaha and a former medical resident there named Anthony Garcia. Years later and hours away in Chicago, Illinois, criminal defense attorney Bob Mata would receive a message in the middle of the night from Garcia's family requesting legal representation. And the years that followed would be a series of bizarre rabbit holes and one of the most exhausting and interesting trials in Nebraska history. Today I talk with Bob Mata about the Anthony Garcia case, podcasting, mental health, and so much more. I'm Kelly Barons-Brink, and this is True Crime IRL, part one of our deep dive into the Anthony Garcia case. Hey guys, it's Kelly. I have just a few small items of business before I get into today's episode. First off, I want to remind everyone that I have my live show on Thursday, September 9th at 6 p.m. at Franklin Street Brewing Company in Manchester, Iowa. It's always a great time to get together with friends, sample some craft brews, and mingle with some fellow weirdos about true crime. And then I'll be in Savannah, Georgia at the Savannah Crime Expo on September 25th, along with tons of your favorite other authors, speakers, and true crime podcasters. And you can go to savannahcrimeexpo.com to get your tickets. I'm super excited for that, and I can't wait to see everyone there. So in this episode, I collaborated with the Defense Diaries team, Bob Mata and Darren Wood. And it was one of the highlights of my podcasting career so far, but hey, don't tell them I said that, okay? We actually recorded over the course of a weekend in this absolutely amazing, super old mansion that's being restored along the Mississippi River. And we just had the best convos. We chatted about podcasting and true crime, and we brainstormed about a lot of other cases we want to crack. It was awesome. And I really hope you enjoy our crazy banter because we do get super off topic a lot. But hey, we had fun. So it was all good. So one quick word from our sponsors, and then we'll get down to it. And now back to the show. 
This is Kelly Barron's Brink from True Crime IRL, and today we are covering another Midwest serial killer case. Although in my definition of the word, this really isn't a serial killer case. We're going to get to that later. But we're being joined by Bob Mata from a fantastic podcast called The Defense Diaries, all about John Wayne Gacy. And if you want to rewind a few episodes, you're going to see that I did a live episode on John Wayne Gacy that was pretty awesome. So go check that out. But for now, we're talking about Anthony Garcia. Bob, tell me a little bit about what you know about Anthony Garcia, because I'm just going to say I am not very familiar with this case at all. I've binged for a couple days in preparation for this, but I really don't know a lot about him. So tell me a little bit about your affiliation with this case. Well, hi, Kelly. Well, hi, Bob. It's good to see you. Good to see you in person. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad to be doing this with you. Rewind. Er, Okay, uh, I first met you at True Crime Podcast Festival in Kansas City in June of this year. So True story. Yep, that's where we met. And I was, um, you did some... uh, We did like a live episode. So you you did a live episode on um, John Wayne Gacy and the Defense Diaries. You did that. You had a booth at True Crime Podcast Festival. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, My current profession is I am a criminal defense attorney. I've been doing that for about 20 years. I was born and raised in uh, a suburb of Chicago, Illinois called Oak Park. I ended up going to law school at the same place that my father went, which was kind of cool. He got to hood me, which is when you graduate from uh, from law school, you get hooded. And uh, they essentially put a hood on you. It's it's kind of a neat ceremony. Um, End up practicing out in Philadelphia for a few years, uh, met my wife in law school at Chicago Kent, and uh, we've been practicing together for now going on 20 years, and uh, you know that, that took some getting used to in terms of kind of spending all of our time together, but uh, over the course of the years, we were able to kind of uh, figure that out somewhat. Basically, kind of the backstory on how I decided to get into the podcasting just kind of in a, in a real short story was that back in 1978 my father represented serial killer John Wayne Gacy along with Sam Amaranti uh, if you fast forward probably about I think 13 years after that he ends up giving me 15 hours of his recorded interviews with John Wayne Gacy that he did pre-trial in anticipation of the trial what a weird gift, right? It was definitely weird. It was definitely a weird gift. But nobody else can say they got that for their birthday, and that's not something you're really going to re-gift. Exactly. Later. <laughs> yeah, there's no re-gifting on that one. Uh, it was definitely, it was definitely strange, and I sat on them forever. Like I had no clue what to do with them. Like you were just like, "Thanks, Dad. I would have rather had a car or something." Like, yeah, that's, right. That's it. Wasn't even something. That's exactly what it was. It, you know, I I really was hoping. I was 21. I had been driving around in a beater, so I was I was rooting for a car for my 21st, and I end up getting those tapes. A box of cassette tapes. A box of cassette tapes, and like I said, I, I I didn't really know what to do with them for the longest period of time, and. I flirted with the idea of licensing the sound out to Netflix and A&E. Had gotten into some protracted conversations with both of those companies and and trying to sell them. And, you know, I wanted to to make a profit off of it, you know, really to help my father, you know, more than anything else financially with, you know, because once once the sound on the tapes is out there, they have no inherent value. There is nothing left 
for me to sell per se. So, you know, the, the deals with Netflix and Annie fell apart and in two years prior to when I was trying to negotiate those deals, I had discovered Serial, the podcast. That's how we all started, right? I mean, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yes. that was like, that was my maiden voyage into listening to podcasts. Side note. Yeah. Adnan. Yeah. Guilty or innocent? <laughs> my, Maybe you might not want to put that out there because it's a very controversial opinion to have. My my gut is that he's innocent. Oh, well, you know? that's coming from a defense attorney. It, so Right. I, I probably do tend towards the innocent. Yeah. Um, but- he his eyes don't don't say killer to me, you know, and and I've always felt that. But did Ted Bundy's eyes say yes. killer when? Yes, oh, everyone's did. shaking their heads unanimously. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, like the, he, the women like, who think he was handsome, his eyes. I don't know. Yeah, they were kind of nice. He's got know. those like dead eyes, like a shark. Like 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 guys that do that kind of shit. If you look at them, um, like you can typically they've got what i call dead eyes so this is like, a real thing like, oh yeah when yeah. you look in their eyes they're soulless yeah basically i'm a pretty good judge of that like i have been throughout my career in terms of kind of being able to look at somebody and kind of pinpoint whether or not you know and, and obviously if i'm dealing with drug dealer cases i'm not like you know digging into their soul you know right. but when i'm dealing with kind of a horrific type of crime you know, I, I think that typically I can I can kind of see what's going on with them. And, and from what I've seen, when you look at any of the most prolific serial killers, if you really look at them and kind of look at what their eyes look like, they have that kind of like they're almost black. Yeah. Like they and they they just are kind of soulless, like you said. Like but, zoning out, kind of yeah, looking right through you. Yeah, it's like yeah, in another know. on another level. Like yeah, yeah, I don't know if it's a narcissistic thing that they all have going on, but you know, it's just there's nothing there. There's nothing behind it. You know where, you know, because I I can tell typically like if somebody's a kind soul, you know, I can typically tell that from their eyes, right? You know, so like me, <laughs> right? Exactly. So yeah, I think. Um, once I kind of, to, you know, I, I listened to Serial and I fell in love with the concept of podcasts. I thought it was such a neat um, medium that I had never really tinkered with at all. And I'd always been kind of an audio guy, like in terms of like I, I, I listen, I learn more listening than I do visually. So, I mean, it was really right up my alley. So I, I had said something to somebody at some point who was kind of in the entertainment industry and she was like, oh. You know, that's a great idea, but I sat on it. You know, I didn't do anything with it because it was, it was kind of nerve wracking. And, and at that point I had no idea, which of course, you know, how much work, what we do is, you know, yeah. From, from that point forward, I decided to, to give it a shot with the podcasting. I called Darren, uh, who's my, one of my closest friends and Hi, Darren. I, I hit him up and you yeah. know what? You need to get Darren on the mic, Darren I agree. on the Darren on the mic. I agree. Yeah. I agree. He's he, hilarious, and he's got a lot of good insight. Too. He does. He's yeah. uh, he's one of he's one of the brighter people that I know in my life, and I know I know some smart people, and he's right at the top of the list. So. Well, you're lucky. I would say, yeah, <laughs> you're lucky to have him on your team. I am. Yeah. What were you talking about? Me. Always you. Always me. Okay, so enough about me. 
let's let's hear a little bit about you. What's what's your backstory? Well, something you said that struck me was you didn't have a lot of experience with like listening to audio stuff. And you know, like podcasts are I mean, they've been around for a decade, but they're relatively new on the trending front. Like they're really getting popular now. Like everyone listens to a podcast and I've been listening to podcasts like you for a decade, like serial. That yeah. was a long time ago. But I've always been a fan of old time radio shows, things like that. I used to listen to a lot of Garrison Keeler, something on like Lake Wabagon. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It was well, I think Lake Lake Wabagon was the town. Okay, um, I need to look it up. Yeah, look it up. I, I thought it was This American Life. What is that's, that? No, that's that NPR, dummy. Yeah, but f- wasn't Garrison Keillor on NPR? I think his show was. Yeah, Lake Wabagon. Yeah, Wobegon. Wabagon. Wobegon. Wabagon. Wobegon. 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 I mean, it makes more sense. Wobegon, you know. Wobegon. News from Lake Wabagon. Wobegon. Wabagon. <laughs> This is how nerdy I am. I used to sit in my living room on um, like a Friday or Saturday night and I'd put on a Garrison Keillor podcast thing or whatever. But it was reminiscent of old time radio days. Totally. And I just love, like, I can't listen and watch things at the same time. That's why I... I'm the same way. I love podcasts. I love radio. I love all of that. And that's what I've done since I was 20 years old. I mean, I started in radio. That's where my background is. Like, Tell radio. me more about that. So my first real job was radio advertising sales. So in the town I lived in, it was a very small town. We would sell the advertisements. We would write the ads. We would sometimes voice the ads, all the stuff. And it was just totally my jam. I loved it. After a while of working in advertising, I moved into, I was like the program director of a radio station and I had my own show oh, and you got everything. On air. Yeah. All oh, right. so much airtime. And right. with no experience, I had to teach myself everything, which, and I did. And it still translates to today. It helps me today. Like, well, cause you, you, you're like a one woman show, right? I mean, you're producing, yeah, I do writing, it all. I do it know, all, doing all your recording for now. But if there are any fans out there who would love to volunteer and help me edit and do what that shit, just come on. Yeah, I'll give you an internship. I'll write you a great letter of recommendation. Just come. Yeah, don't be trying to steal Darren from me either. Darren. (laughs) Darren likes Jameson. Yeah, he's a JMO guy. I love JMO. Oh, speaking of that. So I've started this um, partnership with this podcast in Ireland called Cheap Heat productions, mm-hmm. which is crazy because they're like a pro wrestling show. Did I ever think in my life I would be collabing with pro wrestling? I would think N- not. No. But do you know what? There is a lot of like murder mystery and crazy crime drama that has happened in the pro wrestling world. Really? It's ridiculous. So much so that we're starting our own like sideshow once a month on pro wrestling and crime. It's but crazy. is it as fake as the actual wrestling is or is it oh, real murder? It's real. It's real murder. Real and it's like murder. not just murder, but murder mystery. Wow. I mean, that that is an added element that really is important because, you know, I mean, the mystery is kind of the fun of it. 
you know. It is the fun of it. I mean, we all like cracking cases, right? I mean, cracking cases is kind of the best part of it. It is. So, all right. So you, you, you're in this radio gig for how, how long did you do that? A couple of years. A couple yeah. years. And then, and then what did Kelly do after radio? Kelly was a mom. Kelly mommed. Yeah. Right. I mommed so hard <sighs> and I worked on my degree. Like I went back to school. I got my communications degree through the university of Iowa. How many kids you got? I have three. I have three boys. Three boys. Yeah. So you mom for a while. Um, so much momming. And then um, I worked at the University of Iowa. I got through school. Well, you told me something cool um, when we were uh, talking the other night, you know, and I was all excited about the Field of Dreams game. Like, yeah. Because my boys were playing in that game. So I live about 15 minutes from the Field of Dreams. Cool. I mean, at this point, it's a movie set, right? I mean, it's a movie set, and it's the claim to fame for that area of Iowa. And it's an awesome thing to see it. We get so many tourists coming through, in, especially in the summertime, obviously, when the corn is growing and it's a beautiful, green, lush place to visit. It's a big tourist attraction. So I, you know, and I thought that game was magical when, when Major League Baseball put it together. Like, when, I don't know if you watched, I think you were actually doing a live show the night that that was yeah on. i was doing my live show that night right so you, you didn't get the opportunity to see it but they did an amazing job and it was like you know i, I don't know if it's a guy thing with field of dreams because it's you know the dad and the son having a catch and i cry every single time i've seen it 50 times cry every time <laughs> i can't help it it's you just, cry oh i cry like a baby I cry like a baby. I'm playing that movie. Later yeah, I just I want to see that. I just I'm a I'm I'm an emotional guy. So yeah, that that actually every time it gets me. But the game was so beautiful, and the the Major League Baseball had done such a beautiful job building because they didn't play on the movie set. They actually built a separate field, put about I think eight thousand seats in the stands so they could actually have a crowd out there, and it was just really really well done. I mean, so well done that I think the Cubs and the Reds are playing another game field dreams next year so it's pretty neat iowa was really on stage it was beautiful it, it, was, it was beautiful yeah it really was they really just it was breathtaking nailed it they, yeah. they crushed it and like just watching those those guys like hit the balls into the cornfield was so beyond cool that is cool um yeah so i i really enjoyed that so when did you decide you know that you're gonna fuck with podcasting fuck with podcasting right. so um i've always been a dark person like really since i was like out the womb like i've always loved all the ghost stories just scary shit i started watching like dateline unsolved mysteries all of that stuff when i was very young i've just always been fascinated by it but i started my podcast in 2019 so like i said before i've listened to podcasts forever and after a while i was like you know what i want to hear some stories from the midwest i wanted to make the show that i wanted to hear as a listener so i did that I kind of like honed in on my um, radio past and my skills from the past and stuff. I was like, I could totally do this. And I did it. And very quickly, as a stay-at-home mom with three kids, I realized that's a lot of work. Like, it's a lot of work. It's not just recording or like 
enjoying a story and talking about it. It's so much more than that. There's the editing, there's the website work, the social media, all of it. And I gave up very quickly, but I had a very special person in my life who is kind of one of my mentors. He's a private investigator. He's spent most of his life working in the media. and But anyway, he reached out to me and he was like, you're talented. You need to really like get back into this. I, I listened to all your episodes and then they stopped. Why did they stop? So I started back with that, um, with a vengeance really. When did you start back? In 2021, uh, February of 2021. So so you're, you're just getting back into it, just getting back into it, but I'm full time basically. Like it's my life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's kind of, yeah. If you're going to do it, that is kind of how it turns out being. You know, it's kind of all encompassing. It just takes And one of the things that you didn't mention that both of us do, which we're not doing today is, you know, we write our scripts, you know, you and I both are writers, you know, at the heart of it, we're writing what we're speaking today. We're winging it. A little we bit. are winging it, and I'm so uncomfortable with this. Oh, you're doing great. So I do a live show once a month, and I always tell people I I'm not good at this live stuff. Like I'm not good at it, and I don't love the like unscripted interviews and things like that. But here we are. So, yeah, no, I but think I you're do doing like great. I like to talk to people. So right, which yeah, is what we're that's doing. what we're doing. Exactly, so, and exactly. we are talking about anthony garcia yeah let's talk about that guy we probably should get to it right i think so i think think so. so like i said i had not heard a lot about this case this person until i think you mentioned him to me okay so he's a serial killer in the omaha nebraska area and serial killer i'm like air quoting that i don't think he's a serial killer we probably differ on that opinion a little bit because what makes a serial killer for me okay we're gonna get into the details of anthony garcia but what i am going to say is he's not a serial killer he did kill four people but i think he had a different mo than most serial killers have and I think there's a psychological thing with serial killers that isn't present in his stuff but you know a lot more than I do about this case and tell me how you know all of that yeah I do know probably a little bit more about that case than you I I ended up um, back in 2016 actually I was retained as his attorney I think it was probably 2013 by his family. So 2016 is when the trial took place. So he was accused of and convicted of killing four people. And those crimes happened way before 2016 and 2013. Correct. The first um, series of murders happened in 2008, correct? Correct. Okay. And then later, 2013, right? Correct. Okay. So basically what goes on. I end up getting a phone call on like a Tuesday night at three in the morning. And and it's funny because I actually, I take it back. I I got an email from Anthony Garcia's brother, Fernando. Who emails? But that's so 2013. Yeah. And you know, like I think that they had found our website. He didn't fax you? He didn't fax me. No, (laughs) he paged me. Yeah. Um, So I, you know, and it was weird because I never, ever 
ever would go into like kind of our computer room at like 2.30 in the morning and like check our work email. Like it never happens, but on that particular night, for whatever reason I did, you know, I see that this guy like emailed me about his brother getting arrested down in um, the Southern County in, in Illinois that was about five hours away from us. So I'm like, all right, and I think Allison and I had like had a huge fight that night. So like I, I, I go down, you know, I, for whatever reason, I look at the, the computer, I see the email, I, I decide at that time, and it's 2.30 here, so it would have been, you know, 12.30 in California. I call the guy, and so he starts telling me this story about his brother who was down in Jackson County, uh, Southern Illinois that he had gotten arrested me you know and he says well I, I think he got arrested for a dui so immediately i'm like look man you know no no disrespect here but you know I, I'm, I'm up near chicago I'm, I'm not driving five hours for a dui you know i'm just not doing that he's like well you know it, it sounds like they're they're talking about like murder like that they, they they may be charging him with a murder and so then at that point my you know interest is peaked which obviously is kind of a strange thing, um, you know, but I'm a defense attorney. So I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's something I would drive down to Southern Illinois for. So I go wake Allison up and I'm like, I, th I think we just got a murder case. So she's like, what? You know, she gets up, we decide, you know, we find somebody to watch the kids and we take the drive down there. So we get down to Jackson County and he is in holding, obviously. We go meet with him. And, you know, we advised him that his family had found us and that, we, you know, at least initially we were going to represent him maybe for the extradition hearing. So, you know, an extradition, if, if you're out there and you don't know what it is, it's like if you're arrested in one state, that state obviously doesn't have jurisdiction to try the case. So they have to extradite you to the state where they are going to try the case. In this case, it would have been Nebraska. So. You know, we talked to him about it. It didn't seem like there was going to be a real way to be able to fight the extradition. Eventually, they were going to get him over there. So we waive extradition, and the case gets transferred along with our client to Douglas County over in Omaha. And, you know, from that point forward, we were able to negotiate a, a fee with his folks who paid his, his legal fees, and we ended up representing Garcia. And, you know, it, at the time that we took on the case, we didn't know that he was being charged with, with four murders. Uh, we just thought it was one because they didn't give us much information in terms of when we got down there. We're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. I think we need to backtrack because we're talking about your role in the trial, but mm -hmm. there's so much that happened before 2013. So we probably need to fill in our listeners on all the shit that happened before that. I think that's a good idea. So basically what, what goes on with Garcia, like I said, he was born and raised in California, goes to med school at the University of Utah, ends up getting his residency in the uh, forensic pathology department at Creighton University in Omaha, ends up having some problems when he's there. Um, like kind of the, the, the bigger issue for him is he pulled what he, you know, they, they termed it as a prank. It was extremely sophomoric uh, apparently what he did is he decided to take it upon himself and there was another resident that was with him when they made this phone call they make some kind of prank phone call to the wife of another resident who happened to be taking 
his licensing exam for like a level five examination, Mm -hmm. calls the wife, says, hey, you know, we're calling from Creighton. We just wanted to let you know that we know that your husband is currently taking his exam, but the problem is is that his vacation time wasn't approved and he's got to leave the exam immediately and get back to Creighton. Obviously, that was all bullshit. Um, Creates quite a stir in the department. They figure out pretty quickly who made the call. Garcia gets admonished, but at that point doesn't get fired. So that's not even a funny joke. Why would he have done that? Did he just hate that person or what? Right. There's. It's not even remotely funny. It's just, no. it's cruel. You know, there's, there's no, like, like you said, there's nothing that's humorous about that situation. So that was like the first person on his list that he had it out for. Yeah, Luckily, it, he just did that and didn't kill him. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know that he had any kind of real distaste for that person in particular. I think he was just being kind of a cruel asshole. I think if if you kind of bottom line it, you know, because I like in in all the discovery I got, I never read anything about him having any kind of issue with that guy prior to that that thing occurring. So why that happened, I, I don't know. And when I asked my client, he really didn't have an answer for me either. So he survives that at Creighton. They keep him on for a while. He's not a great student has issues. Um, you know, there's a situation where he was, uh, you know, they have to go and attend like X number of autopsies, you know, cause he's a, you know, forensic pathologist. They're dealing yeah. with dead bodies all the time. Apparently one time when he's doing this, he was signed in, they know it was him. And he ends up after the autopsies performed, he leaves the body laying face down, which is a massive no, no. So what's starting to happen is he's building up like a real shit list of things that he shouldn't be doing. Just things that are not professional He's a licensed doctor at that point. I mean, when you're going in for your residency, like that's when you want to specialize in a certain area of medicine. So, you know, there he was obviously trying to get his, you know, residency done, you know, so that he could be a forensic pathologist. This is so reminiscent. I know I probably said this before of Dr. Death, just incompetency. You can see it right out the gate. Like, yeah, he just wasn't doctor material. He wasn't, you know, and it's like, I, I've never been a huge fan of going to the doctor. Um, and I can tell you Same. definitively after this case, I was uh, even less inclined to go to the doctor. I probably have, like, I'm probably teeming with disease just because I refuse to go to the doctor. Well, that's unsettling. Yeah, I mean, for real. <laughs> well, so I had um, I, a major injury and I have lots of screws holding my left arm together right now. But if, if I had been doing this at that time and known what I know now, I probably would have just let my arm fall off. Yeah, I mean, or or even worse, if you had gone to say like Dr. Anthony Garcia, you'd probably have a stump, you know? So, I mean, you'd probably be an amputee. So yeah, he, he was, you know, had a hard time. Uh, I, I, the, the final straw for him at at Creighton was he had some kind of beef with one of his instructors. Was that um Bueller. Hunter. Hunter. Bueller. Bueller. Not Bueller. Bueller. Hunter. Chandra Chandra Butra. You were close. And you know what? You you said it earlier, so you you were real you did. Yeah, you're you're there. You're there. So he had some kind of beef with this this woman, and you know, I guess it got heated. 
And he said some ugly things and, you know. Not only did he say some ugly things, but he was off the rails. Like, yeah, he yeah, he was inclined Everyone to knew do there was something not quite right with him. Yeah. Am he, I right? He was definitely an odd duck. There's no question about that. However, being an odd duck does not make you a murderer. I'm so, an odd duck and I've never killed anyone. Well, that's, that, that is, that is is very settling to me. I'm glad to know that you don't kill people. But, I don't. You know, so this guy, it, it falls apart for him there. Basically, uh, Bill Hunter, who was uh, the chair of the department, or I'm sorry, the director of the department, comes to, to Garcia and says, hey, look, it's not working out here. Um, you know, you can see that. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. He had asked Garcia to apologize to Butra. He's like, I'm not doing that under any circumstances. Yeah, and and he like Anthony played the race card a lot. You know, he felt like he was always being discriminated against because he had a Hispanic origin. Didn't work for him. And ultimately Hunter says, Look, I, I'm gonna work to get you a residency somewhere else. You know, I'm not trying to ruin your career here. And this is where it reminds me of the Dr. Death Netflix docuseries because... Um, Was that the first season? Second. No, I didn't watch it. Oh, with to Christian it. Slater, you watched it. That wasn't Dr. Death. That was, uh, that was fucking... Uh, Doctor Death. No, that was John, uh, the one with the wife, where she ends no, up killing him. That was that was Dirty John. Oh yeah, that's Dirty John. That was Christian Slater. What? He was in that too. Oh, that was the first season because I've only watched the first season of that shit. Yeah, that was with the guy who was the doing the back surgeries who kept yes, fucking pulling him. people's discs yeah, yeah, out, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> making debilitating injuries. Everyone's paraplegic. Yes. Yeah, that so, was the first season. So get your shit right. This is where it reminds me of that docu series a lot because. They didn't just say, nope, you can't practice medicine. You are totally incompetent, which he was. They were like, let's just pass you along to someone else. Right. right? It, it's it's very, yeah. very similar to that. And, you know, and that kind of was the theme throughout his, his medical career. I'm talking about Garcia, which, which really did mirror kind of what was going on in Dr. Death, where you know, obviously all these institutions knew that this guy had massive issues. Like that guy was a researcher. Like he had a brilliant mind, but he was no surgeon, you know. You know, people want to talk about the good old boy network in like certain aspects of life, especially conservative things and stuff like that. But in the medical industry, the medical field, there is a good old boy network going on and they cover for each other oh, and massively. They won't ever like throw anyone under the bus. Like, yeah, that no, that's happen. true. So well, that and, definitely and was a thing here. Definitely. And, you know, kind of going back to that point, like when you look at medical malpractice cases, like always the toughest part of that case is finding an expert, which would have mm -hmm. to be a doctor who's going to be able to come into court and testify against other doctors that they had, you know, that they acted um negligently yeah. you know that they had they had provided services that were below uh -huh. the normal standard of care so and then it's it's really hard to find doctors that are willing to do that and you know the guys that do do that are typically pariahs you know because of exactly what you're talking about because they really take care of each other in terms of and it all stems from liability you know, because those, those medical malpractice cases are bell ringers, you know, I mean, it's easier to tell when a lawyer fucks up, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, oh, look, you, you clearly didn't call any of these witnesses who obviously should have called all, you know, it's more evident in terms of if a, a lawyer has neglected a case 
Whereas, you know, uh, typically when you're talking about something with a surgeon, it's internal, you know, so in terms of whatever they may have fucked up and, you know, I mean, if somebody clips an artery when they're yeah. in there, it's not necessarily negligent, you know, I mean, shit happens, it's close quarters in there, you know, so it's, it's tough, you know, and, and it's like doctors are, are it's a, it's a tough thing for them to go in and say, look, you know, if I were in the same situation, there's no way that would have happened, mm -hmm. you know? So, but kind of getting back to Garcia, that's a terrifying concept. It's like I was telling you before we came on air, you know, when I found out that he was a licensed surgeon in the state of Illinois, it, it horrified me, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and irrespective of whether or not you know, he had killed anybody or, or not just me kind of getting to know him, the concept of him being able to open somebody up on an operating table was terrifying to me. Fortunately, he never got to that point. Like he never actually operated anybody. So I'm, I'm sure that all the people that potentially could have been his patients are very thankful for that. Exactly. Um, yeah. But it, so I want to jump into that serial killer thing. Yeah. And, the, and the one thing that you... In terms of kind of like the time and the numbers, I disagree with you. But what I do agree with you, I think that a typical situation with uh, serial killers is that oftentimes they do have a mental illness aspect that kind of drives them. And, and kind of the thing with Anthony Garcia, at least the theory of the state was, was that he was it was a revenge theme. You know, like that he was he was paying them back for ruining his career by firing him at Creighton, that that set him down a road of just kind of despair and kind of like set his his medical career on a path that he just couldn't get it back on the tracks. So in, in that sense, I kind of agree with you, because if you compare him to like your typical serial killer, they are typically dealing with some kind of narcissistic, which Garcia definitely was a narcissist. Definitely. You know? Like when, when yeah. I when I sat in the room with him, you know, and my father tried that case with me, you know, so he had the the comparison to make between when he defended Gacy and Garcia, which was fascinating. Like that, like having my father try that case, and that was the one and only case I ever tried with him, you know. But I could always draw on his experience in dealing with Gacy. In terms of trying to deal with Garcia, you know? I would love to hear your dad say, "Here's the difference. Like, here's how he was with this, and contrast, and all of that." And it it was it was it was really pretty fascinating. And you know, the one thing that that my father and I would always say to each other, you know, is that like Gacy, much like Garcia, always thought that they were the smartest guy in the room. You know, that was just kind of kind of like you. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, you know, so yeah, I mean, he, he had that kind of mentality, you know, it's like he always thought anything that he was saying to us, it was like going over our heads, right, and, you know, right. and, and when you have a client like that, you kind of have to play the game with them mm -hmm. because you do want them to trust you. you I know can only I mean? imagine. Right. It's yeah. like, like I wasn't calling bullshit on him. You know what I mean? Like whenever he'd say something that would you know, kind of set off an alarm. I wouldn't be like, you know, I, I would never call bullshit on him on that type of stuff just because I needed to develop a real kind of trust with him in terms of us defending him in this type of case. So, but yeah, like his whole thing at, at Creighton went awry. He ends up going to uh, University of Chicago, Illinois, which is in the city of Chicago, and he gets a residency there. 
Now, the most interesting thing about that, because part of the state's theory was, you know, this poor young 10 year old boy that was murdered by, uh, well, Garcia was convicted of it. So it's devastating. And we're going to get into the details of that in a little bit. It was horrific. Yeah. It was horrific. It It was, frankly, for me, you know, all of the people losing their lives was horrific. But that young boy with the way that he was left in terms of the state of his body was extremely hard for me to digest. Yeah, just had his whole shit set up. He was ready. He was down there. He was gaming. He was actually gaming when the doorbell rang. And when his dad found him, the video game music was like... Still playing. ...loud. And he has said that's all he remembers is that video game music and the blood and all of that. Going into that case, and we'll we'll kind of get into that later when we kind of give you guys the background of what we're talking about with the case, but that was a... Like my ability to even be able to look at the photographs, I was extremely concerned whether I'd be able to do that. Like, honestly, you know. You've seen all the photographs. Oh, like, yeah. you saw, yeah. you've seen a lot of shit. I've probably. seen a lot of shit. How do you deal with that as a parent? It's hard. Yeah. It really is, you know, because I myself have four kids, and, uh, you know, that was that was challenging. You know, like I, in terms of like just going into it before we even got the discovery, you know, before we got the pictures, you know, I was saying, man, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this, you know. Yeah, no, it, that, that was, you know, I'd handled a lot of stuff. I was probably 15 years into to practice at that point. I'd handled a lot of, you know, pretty gruesome things, but nothing like that. That was like the first case where I was dealing with a child being murdered and it was um, extremely challenging for me. Um, but yeah, so kind of jumping back and I know, sorry out there, but we're jumping back a, a little bit. But it's, a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah, it's fluid. Y'all stick with us because this is going to be a multi-parter. So, yeah. Right. Yeah, it'll be good, too. So, Garcia ends up, you know, he takes this residency. But, but you know, the interesting thing, and when we kind of get to the trial portion of what we're talking about, one of the main theories that the state had put forth was that, you know, Hunter was kind of the main guy who had, like, fucked up his career by firing him. All right. So, that was, like, real big in terms of their narrative. And... The reality of it was is that Hunter had written the letter and called a friend that was at UIC who said, hey, we got this guy here. It's just not a good fit for us, but we think he'll be a good fit for you. He ends up getting him his next job, that residency at UIC. So it's like this guy didn't really like he, he gave him multiple chances when probably other doctors wouldn't have given him the same opportunity. And then he ends up going and, you know, he kind of fucks that one up at UIC as well. And, you know, from that point forward, so that's, you know, you're, you're probably putting that at like 2003, you know, like when he gets to UIC and kind of fucks that thing up too, you know, and then from there, there on forward, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't really join any more residency programs. At some point down the road, he decides that he wants to try to, get into LSU's, one of their residency programs, all right? 
So, but that's years down the road. And then in the interim, he's doing all kinds of work, you know, like he, he works at clinics. He got a job with the, the, uh, the prison industry in Indiana and, you know, he worked there for about a year and like everywhere that he was, it's kind of like what you were saying early on. He just had this tendency to kind of like pop off on people. you know. Yeah. And like everyone knew there was something like not quite right about him. And I just feel like in the medical field, they just pass the rogue person on to the next. Yeah. No. So, I mean, right. And, and you know, like, as you know, I mean, bedside manner counts in terms of being a doctor. Yeah. You know, it's kind of an important factor in terms of. I mean, there are so many doctors who have zero bedside manner, but they're also not yelling at their patients. Or Yeah, or their co-workers. Right. You know what I mean? Like, they can actually, like, coexist with someone and function and work in a normal work environment. And he was not one of those people. Right. That's 100% true. Like, he just, he, he, had, he had problems. And they weren't, again, like, these aren't the type of problems where you automatically say, oh, my God, this guy's a killer. But their problems were it kind of shows that he has a hard time finding his place and fitting in. Yeah, and like problems where you can see that he's not going to excel at patient care or advocating for his patients or really just function in any capacity in a medical field. Right, exactly. You know, so so that kind of continues on. And then if we fast forward to 2008... And we bring ourselves to Omaha, Nebraska, and it's like March 13th, regular school day. Young Tom Thomas Hunter is getting off the bus. It, and it's in this neighborhood of Omaha, which I, you know, I was a licensed attorney in Illinois. So I had never, I wasn't familiar with Omaha until I, I got on the case. And then I obviously became very familiar with Omaha. I actually moved out there for the trial for months. But, you know, this particular neighborhood called Dundee was beautiful, like real upscale bedroom neighborhood. It's where all the, the people with wealth lived. And, and Omaha's got a lot of money. Like there's just like Warren Buffett lives out there. There's has a lot of money and a lot of conspiracy and controversy, too. It does. It really does. Um, there's a lot of shit going down in Omaha. There, there was there was a lot of shit, in a, and it's, it, it's funny that you say that because probably what you're going to end up talking about is things that we were... Sex trafficking. Yeah, there was there was that, and there there was a lot of um, what appeared to be within the the medical examiner's office. There was a lot of issues with that particular office, in, in in conjunction with the criminal justice system out there. They had some real issues, which were things that we were looking into because we were leaving no stone unturned in terms of trying to defend the case, but. See, that's the thing that kind of goes back to the Dr. Death type situation where, you know, like his deficiencies weren't necessarily following him to like wherever he would go next. I had every report. I had everything in our discovery, which now that you bring that up, um, just so my my listeners out there know, after the second Gacy tape season, we would be doing our second full season on Dr. Anthony Garcia. That was random. <laughs> yeah, so that, that, no, it was actually a great segue. Thanks, Kelly. I don't think it was, actually. You were like, um, I'm talking about blowing my nose, and then I'm going to talk yeah, about... Oh, it was a great segue. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, it's going to be a super deep dive. You know how I do out there. Um, I know how you do. <laughs> so... I mean, I think he ends up 
you know, the UIC thing wasn't necessarily that he was butting heads with anybody there. Like he kind of got to UIC after he left Creighton, which they allowed him to resign. You know, they didn't technically fire him from from Creighton. They just passed him on because they didn't want to deal with him. Right. So there's definitely that aspect. So he ends up at at UIC and it doesn't go well there. But he didn't. He didn't have the same type of issues. He had different issues, but they were all kind of medical issues that he claimed that he was having. You know, he was claiming that he was having headaches. very, very severe headaches, like debilitating headaches. Every serial killer I cover, they always talk about headaches they had when they were younger or like when they were committing the crimes. It's always like traumatic brain injury or concussions. They always say the same thing. They have these horrible headaches and blackouts. I think that that's a link for sure. I really do because... Yeah, something that they need to look into, right? I agree. I, you know, and I, I think, you know, in retrospect, when you're looking back at like older cases where, you know, now we know about things like CTE, you know, and we kind of like grew to know about that and it was born out of like the football head injuries that were occurring where you know you had these football players that were starting to kill themselves or getting super violent with their spouses you know and kind of like going off the rails and people were like well what the fuck's going on with the nfl players so they finally after and that was a huge fight you know because the nfl is huge money and it's it's tied in with vegas and it's it's a whole thing there's a lot of money at stake there i do a lot with pro wrestling and i would say they had less um intervention they had less help in the pro wrestling industry they had a lot of traumatic brain injuries too and that's why there are so many murders and crazy like crime stories linked to wwf wwe and then um even ufc like yeah or even boxing you know all of it all of it like there's so many murders like domestic assaults and just a lot of crazy stories that are in that genre and that's why i like to cross over with that yeah yeah no and i I think it's it's an excellent point um and i I think that it's certainly because as soon as you mentioned that i automatically started thinking about like the Gacy tapes, like my father asks him if he ever had a head injury, and he 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 did, and he did, and he did, he did. Yeah, I talked about it yeah. in my live episode, and, and so yeah. did Garcia. Yeah. And Garcia played football yeah. for all four years yeah. in high school, you know. And I think these headaches started like when he was seventeen, eighteen for Garcia. But nobody really acknowledges it. But they should. They should. They should. Right acknowledge it that it's a problem it is a problem yeah Yeah, i mean it's like if you think about you know essentially when you're talking about a concussion you're talking about your your brain slamming against your skull yeah totally i mean it's like literally for a concussion your brain is smashing against your skull you don't always come back from that and people don't look into it later right and i i think that's a, a clear link you know, I, think I agree. I, I mean, I that's too. one of my platforms in life in general, like mental health and um, sports injuries and concussions. And I probably talk about it in about every episode that I do on True Crime IRL. But I think we need to look into it a lot more. I, I could not agree more. You know, and, and like it's a conversation for another day. But you know, totally. And, and, but but, but I, I'm with you, and, and I know you and I have discussed like this mental health. The mental health aspect and it's always been 
for as long as I've been practicing law, you know, the way that that, that aspect mental health has been ignored. It's it's always ignored. It's it's always ignored and it's it's unbelievable. I mean, just now, like just now, it's finally starting to come to light, like where it's being acknowledged. Because people who are like high profile are just now starting to say, Hey, I battled this. There's such a stigma, so totally, yeah. but you know, it, it's like it's even worse than that. It, it's like that it's just not acknowledged as a possibility that people are suffering from mental illness in terms of like maybe quantifying why they've done what they've done. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, it's just, it has to be taken into consideration. You know I mean? For somebody who is otherwise a normal person to kind of just one day go off the rails where they've, and I've had multiple clients that have lived completely, I'm talking guys that are in their fifties and sixties who lived completely normal happy lives, raised families, happy marriages, all of a sudden one day just fucking lose their mind, you know? And, and it's one of those things where to ignore the aspect of mental health, it's unbelievable to me. And it's been so frustrating, you know, to like trying, oh my God. To like I can to, imagine as a criminal defense lawyer, I would think that like a lot of your cases have a mental health aspect. I would say a majority. Yeah. A majority. And, and me yeah. trying to convince a prosecutor that mental health is an issue in the case is like, you know, I, it, it's literally banging my head against a wall because right. it, it's so frustrating. It, but it's, it's, it's so plain to see in my eyes, but I just don't get how they don't take that into it. Me, either do I, you know, it's, it, it befuddles me on a daily basis, you know, like, honestly, I'm like, is it getting better in this day? You know like, what? It, it, it's starting to like, like in the counties that I practice in most prevalently now, they are, they've actually established mental health courts, which is like beautiful to see. And, you know, it, it, because what that does is it incorporates social workers and incorporates doctors. Mm-hmm. So people that are qualified to handle mental health issues are brought into the situation and you know, so basically the job of the lawyer on the front end of a case where you think that your client is having some mental health issues, you know, I'm trying to convince the prosecutor to agree that like, look at it, this is the facts that we're dealing with. We need to seriously take into consideration that this guy has some like some serious mental health issues. Let's address it, you know? So that's like, that becomes my job in cases like that is to convince the prosecutors to say, okay, you know, I think you're right. Let, let's, you know, let, you know, because, and it depends on the, you know, the type of case, because if it's a violent case where there's like, you know, a real, real victim centric case where, you know, somebody was injured severely or killed, it's hard for them. You know, it's hard for them to either go to the family and say, look, you know, we want to, we want this guy to pay the price. You know, we want justice to prevail, but you know, the bottom line is that this guy is probably suffering from some mental illness. Families don't want to hear that shit. You know what I mean? Like victims, families are like, I don't care. I want this guy punished. You know, he did something horrific to my family, you know? So it's like, it's a tough role for them. I, I just 
I know, and I can't put myself in those shoes, but I'm going to for a second. I feel like I would care. I feel like I would be like, that's not who they are. We need to address like the mental health aspect. Yeah, I, but I, I think you're the minority there. I mean, I wish everyone were like you. I mean, honestly, because that, that like we'd live in a much different world if, if it were that way, you know, but a lot of people, you know, if they suffer some kind of massive blow, whether it be to a loved one or, or what have you, it, it's hard to kind of take that broad look at things because you're feeling so much pain and anger that it, it, it clouds your vision to be able to kind of look at it in a more, you know, myopic type of way where you're saying, okay, well, you know, yeah, maybe that is a thing. It, it's tough. It's a, it's a tough battle to win like a majority of the times, you know, but the one thing that happens is a lot of time, you know, like that old saying, time heals all wounds. Doesn't. Doesn't. But what it does do is it, it sometimes allows people to take a step back, take a breath and say, all right. Yeah. I, I mean, I can see that. Yeah. You know, and if this person is acting out of their nature, if right. they, you know, if it's a 50 year old person that's lived a completely normal life and has done something completely out of character. Yeah then, you know, then yeah, uh, let's take a look at that, you know, because I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's a tough situation. So yeah. Yeah. So Garcia does the UIC thing, starts suffering from these massive uh, migraines that are debilitating to him to the extent where he can't function, you know, at least that's what he's telling them. Right. You know, um, so that ends up not working out and that goes on for like another year. So that puts us at like 2004. So then he just kind of starts picking up odd jobs, you know, at like clinics and like kind of, I, I think the one situation that you're talking about where he explodes on some person um, and, and I, I think what it ends up boiling down to is he tells somebody to suck his dick, like somebody that he worked with, like it, and I, I don't know if, it, I can't remember exactly if it was the Indiana prison system or if it was another uh, kind of a clinic that he was working at, but he like exploded on somebody just kind of like lost his shit completely you know acts inappropriately and and like i think literally says the words you know why don't you suck my fucking dick so he ends up getting shit canned from that job you know so it it kind of like goes on like that for years where he he would pick up work he would always get hired somewhere else you don't you know and he's a doctor so he was still making a decent living you know he can't really manage day-to-day life no that's for certain I got to know him pretty well, and I never saw that side of him. You know what I mean? He never got mad at you? No. So, I mean, and we'll talk about, like, I wouldn't say mad, but, like, kind of when he shut down, almost, like, robotic in a sense. Like, he just shut down. But it's it's for later in the episode. It was yeah, after. Yeah, it is. But, it, but it's a... But was there, like, a, a day and a time where he just shut down and it never came back? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. but I'll, I'll tell you about that later. I but know. Yeah, it, it was, it was crazy. Yeah, like, I mean, it, it was like literally, it was like almost discernible. Yeah. I could see it. You know, like as soon as I, as soon as the words came out of my mouth, it was like I turned off a switch and he, wow, and it never came back. So at this point, Bob and I have discussed some of the factors that contributed to the downfall of Anthony Garcia. And this is where we're going to end part one of our multi-part episode. 
there are a lot more interesting details in this case coming your way in part two, as well as Bob Mata's firsthand account of the Anthony Garcia trial as Garcia's criminal defense attorney. You won't want to miss it. Be sure to check out The Defense Diaries, hosted by Bob Mata and produced by Darren Wood. They're currently in Season 1, The Gacy Tapes, and Season 2 is in the works right now. It's one of my favorite true crime podcasts, and I actually do listen to it. It's one of the few that I actually have time for or make time to listen to, so I highly recommend it. Bob, Darren, and I will all be at the Savannah Crime Expo in Savannah, Georgia on Saturday, September 25th, along with many of your other favorite true crime podcasters and speakers. So if you've been on the fence about going to the event, just buy the tickets and go. It's going to be a blast. And Savannah is an amazing city. Let's explore it together. True Crime IRL is produced and hosted by Kelly Barron's Brink and part of TNC Productions. Your five-star ratings and reviews are always appreciated on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And believe it or not, they go a long way in growing the show. So thank you. Please go to truecrimeirl.com for more information about the show and be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at the handle truecrimeirl, all one word. The True Crime IRL Patreon is also a great way to support the podcast, and I really appreciate your contributions there. This has been Kelly Barron's Brink from True Crime IRL, and until next time, you know the drill. Lock your doors, people. Just just lock them. Do it. Just lock those doors. Bye-bye.